Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Greg Storr. The justices returned to the courtroom this week after a two-week break that featured a new controversy. There's a New York Times story that described allegations of a network of conservative activists that have been trying to use social settings to subtly influence the justices on abortion. The story described a leak about the outcome of a pending case that originated at a dinner party at the home of Justice Sam Alito, allegedly. Thanks. Thanks for throwing that in there, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, 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 you've been talking to people about this. What sort of jumped out at you about – there's a lot in this story, but what jumped out at you as kind of the biggest thing to, to uh, keep an eye on going forward? Well, I think there's a distinction between what people think about it, between sort of the general public and, you know, legal experts who are sort of steeped in this issue. I think among the public, um, there's sort of, you know, um, frustration with these, you know, ethics situations popping up. It's not just, you know, this latest alleged link uh, or leak um, and sort of this more general effort to influence the justices, but we're also coming on the background of, of course, the Dobbs leak, um, which we know actually did happen, um, and also the controversies surrounding Justice Thomas participating in election cases involving the 2020 election, despite, you know, efforts by his wife, Jenny Thomas, um, to overturn election results in certain states that President Biden won. So I think that's sort of the general public is not having a, a favorable reaction to it. Among legal experts, I think the thing that really stuck out to them um, was more the fact that the Supreme Court, our listeners may be surprised to hear that the Supreme Court is not actually bound by the ethics codes that bind lower court judges. You know, there's some some debate over that. You know, some of the some of the codes do or the requirements do bind the justices formally, but they say, you know, because of separation of powers concerns, Congress can't actually do that, um, but that they look to these ethics codes um, to guide really their behavior and, you know, their decisions on recusals. Um, but they haven't formally adopted a code, um, even though, you know, there's been um, some suggestion that there have been talks within the Supreme Court. So when I'm talking to legal ethics experts, um, they seem to think that a, a lot of this uh, public outrage could be helped by adopting a formal um, code that does bind the justices and having some sort of mechanism um, like an advisory body that can sort of, um, well, advise the justices on these ethics issues. I know, I don't know, Greg, I'm not so sure that that would really appease the public because, you know, the, what they're describing to me seems very similar to what we have for lower court judges. And I'm not sure that um, that's altogether too satisfying to the public what's going on in, in, in that situation. What do you think? I, I suspect you are right there. And, you know, w w what's really going to have to happen to, to satisfy anybody uh, is going to be a change of attitude from the Supreme Court. Um, you know, th this is a court where justices are making a lot of decisions that don't violate any clear ethics rules, but raise questions about the court's credibility. They are going, as we discussed on the last podcast, they go to the Federalist Society uh, dinner and get, get, you know, standing ovations there. Um, and here you kind of look at the reaction from the court to this whole episode. 
they, the, the whistleblower in this case, a guy named Rob Schenk, sent a letter to the Chief Justice laying out what he, he it was alleging, and uh, there's been no reaction from the Chief Justice. And just this week, we got a letter from the, uh, the, the, the internal lawyer for the Supreme Court responding to a couple of lawmakers, Sheldon Whitehouse and Hank Johnson, uh, who had, who, who raised all sorts of con- concerns. And it was a, you know, a pretty dismissive letter that basically repeated Justice Alito's allegations, cast, uh, the story in the best light possible to him and said, oh, there are no ethics rules that Justice Alito violated here. So, uh, you know, it, it, there's no indication that the court as a whole considers any of this to be a problem. And, uh, it, it, you know, I think that uh, I suspect the outcry from both lawmakers and some in the general public is only going to get louder as, as this continues. Right. And I think, you know, one of the interesting things when I was talking to um, some people about this was that Although not formally, you know, that didn't go through the formal channels that would have bound, you know, a circuit court judge or a district court judge. That's basically what probably would have happened as well, except instead of a court administrator sort of dismissing these claims, it would have been done by maybe the chief judge of a circuit. Um, so again, I, I don't really see how, you know, creating this formal sort of mechanism for reviewing these claims is going to really solve the problem. I think you're right. It's got to be with the justices themselves. Well, should we jump ahead to arguments? Uh, yeah, let's do it. We had uh, some uh, big arguments, a uh, big immigration case this week. Mm-hmm. Um, did This is a case in which the Biden administration is trying to, to shift the priorities for deportation to focus on basically the most what they perceive as the most dangerous people and the people who just entered the country uh, very recently. There are big questions in this case about whether the states that are challenging it, Texas and Louisiana, have the right to be there. What what did you make of the the arguments in this case? Well, first, I just wanted to say that if this sounds um, familiar to listeners, it should. That's because this was this case was the subject of our deep last deep dive episode. Um, So go ahead and take a listen to that if you want a little more info. But as far as what happened at the argument, um, the thing that stuck out to me is that I mean, I know it's dangerous to try to predict what's going to happen after a Supreme Court argument. Um, in this case, I would say that's particularly so, um, in part because, well, there is this sort of issue about standing, whether or not the states can be there. Then there's also the issue of the merits. Then there's also a, a third issue about what the court should do, depending on how it decides the merits. Um, and I, I don't see that any of those particular issues are going to come down on ideological lines necessarily. They don't seem to have an ideological bend for me. Um, and the justices seem to sort of be all over the place on each one of these issues. And so, you know, as hard as it is to figure out where the nine are going to fall on one issue, in this case, you're trying to figure out where they all fall on three issues. And it just seemed impossible to me. Yeah, that that uh, you kind of stole some of what I, what I might have said that it certainly did not feel like this was necessarily going to be along ideological lines. You had this, uh, I thought, fascinating divide between the judges, the justices who had served on the D.C. Circuit, the, the court that is used to hearing all these challenges to administrative rules. Um, and and uh, John Roberts and Brett Kavanaugh in particular were um, kind of aghast at the extent to which the administration was seeking to limit the power of courts to to set aside agency rules. And in that area, uh, your your position on uh, vacatur, 
that sounded to me to be fairly radical uh, and inconsistent with, for example, you know, with those of us who are on the D.C. Circuit, we do, you know, five times before breakfast. That's what you do in an APA case. And all of a sudden you're telling us that, no, uh, you can't vacate it. Uh, you do something different. Uh, are you overturning that whole established practice under the APA? Yeah, I think at one point Justice Kagan referred to them as the D.C. Circuit Cartel, um, which (laughs) – can I say one more thing that really stuck out to me, Greg, about this argument since I was in the courtroom? Please. Um, It was two and a half hours long. (laughs) 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 Scheduled for an hour, two and a half hours long. Um, This is a pattern that's been happening for Supreme Court arguments this term is that they're just going like not just like a little bit over, but like more than double the time, which is such a dramatic change from what we saw pre pandemic where there was this real effort to keep like down to the minute timing, right? Like the chief justice would be like, well, let's give you two more minutes to respond. And now people are getting, you know, double the time, sometimes triple the time to talk. Yeah. But, Kimberly, weren't you heartened by the Prococo argument on Monday where um, I just checking the transcript? It took barely an hour. It ended at 11.09 a.m. No, no, I wasn't, because that is <laughs> that is not the norm. Um, and I think as we get into some of these cases that the court's going to be hearing next week, um, I think that we're going to be seeing some really long arguments. Um, but it doesn't seem to me like there's any appetite from the justices, and particularly not the advocates, to kind of rein these arguments in. All right. So that was last week. Uh, there were some other arguments that we're not going to spend some time uh, reviewing. But we're going to move on to this week's arguments. This week, the justices will hear their final cases of the year, starting off with a big one, 303 Creative versus Alanis, a follow-up to the ongoing clash between anti-discrimination laws that are meant to protect LGBT citizens and religious freedom. So, Greg, um, can you briefly tell us what's going on in 303 Creative? Sure. This is kind of the offspring of a case a few years ago called Masterpiece Cake Shop. That was the case involving a baker who who said, I won't make cakes for same-sex weddings because I have a religious objection. Um, the legal backdrop is that Colorado is one of 20, 25 states, depending on how you count them, that have laws that bar, among other things, uh, discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation in public accommodations. And This case involves a website designer named Lori Smith who wants to start creating wedding websites but only for opposite-sex weddings. She says she has a religious objection to same-sex marriage. The Supreme Court is going to hear her free speech arguments uh, for why she should be basically entitled to an exemption from the law. And her argument is essentially, this is expressive activity. Uh, Colorado would be forcing me to say something uh, that I don't believe uh, is consistent with my faith as the price of creating, uh, of going into this or expanding my business into wedding websites. She says it's, this is not a question of discriminating against LGBT people. It's a question of this message that I don't want to convey. Uh, the law even bars her from putting a statement on her website explaining her views, why she doesn't believe that the, the Bible uh, allows for, for same-sex weddings. Colorado 
is uh, on the other side. They are saying this is not a case about speech. It's about sales and sales practices. And that once Smith has created, has decided I'm going to sell wedding websites to the public, she can't pick and choose uh, who she sells them to. She has to sell them to everybody. This is a matter of equal access, equal dignity. The Biden administration is backing the state in the case, and it is one of those arguments that I personally am looking forward to because it uh, probably will be loaded with great hypotheticals and uh, be be very lively. Uh, Greg, um, I think that you are confused. I think you're back a couple of terms ago because didn't the justices already decide this issue in that Masterpiece Cake Shop case? Oh, Kimberly, I think you're the one who's confused. <laughs> we, we, we thought they were going to. Uh, they basically, in that case, took, took an off-ramp. So uh, two, two things. Uh-huh. First of all, uh, as I mentioned, this case is only about free speech. They did not agree to take her religious rights arguments. We can get into that uh, if you want. But in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, they the court found that the Colorado Civil Rights Commission had acted with religious animus towards the baker in that case, Jack Phillips. And uh, they tossed out the case against him. They left open all these big constitutional questions about whether there's a First Amendment right either under the Religion Clause or under the Free Speech Clause to have an exemption from from anti-discrimination laws. And so uh, the issue has been percolating since then, and now it's back. Right. I mean, I think it's notable that the masterpiece Peace Cake Shop case was heard when Justice Kennedy was on the court when we had sort of him in the middle and four liberals, four conservatives on the other side. And and maybe the off ramp was taken because they couldn't really decide this. What is a very difficult issue? Um, that doesn't seem to be that doesn't seem to be necessary in in this current court. Um, where there's pretty firmly six conservatives who um, seem to think that religious rights need to be protected. But then again, as you mentioned, this is not a religion case. This is a First Amendment case, which um, there was a claim of religious freedom that was brought to the court, and it only took this free speech case. And it's not totally obvious to me why. I mean, it sort of seems like the free speech is a little messier than the religion because there's all this issue of like commercial versus private speech. You know, is it based on, you know, the content of speech? And there's all these different ways to kind of think about free speech cases that seems so, well, the legal term I think is messy. (laughs) Yes, but in at least one sense, it's simpler. Uh, they spent a lot of time in the masterpiece argument, if you, if you recall, trying to figure out was this actually expression that that uh, Jack Phillips was engaged in. Here, there's a much uh, stronger argument, I would say, that what she is doing is speech. So that might have been part of the appeal for the justices in, in, in taking up this case. That said, I, I'm sure we will still get hypotheticals and we may still be talking about cake bakers and, and makeup artists and, and uh, other folks. So, Greg, you're telling me that you were not convinced by the brief in Masterpiece Cake Shop that really um, tried to convince people that cake making was expressive by showing all the different different kinds of cakes. That was one of my favorite briefs. It had all these different kinds of cakes and different ways you might decorate them. Um, and I did think that that led to a lot of really great hypotheticals. Again, with Justice Kagan talking about the chef creating this masterpiece and is that expressive Um but I guess you weren't convinced by that. Well, uh, more importantly, I'm not sure the court was convinced. <laughs> and 
Um, yeah, and, and, and as you said, this is a different this is a different court. We, uh, you know, it, it's no longer Anthony Kennedy in control. It is uh, uh, well, we'll see who's in control, but but uh, um, certainly the conventional wisdom in this case is that the website designer and the the uh, Alliance Defending Freedom, which is the religious rights group that's behind the case, uh, go in as a pretty heavy favorites. Right. I, w- I was mentioning how it's hard to, um, how it's dangerous to try to guess the outcome after oral arguments, but you're going to go ahead and guess it before even oral arguments. I think you're safe. <laughs> I think you're pretty safe though, Greg. All right. Let, let me, uh, why don't we shift to the other potential blockbuster case of next week, which is the Moore versus Harper case. Why don't you give us a, a rundown about that? Sure. So I'll, um, briefly explain this case, although I don't really know that there's a way to briefly explain this case, but I'll give a little intro into what's going on here. Um, So this involves the latest round of redistricting out of North Carolina for federal congressional districts. So the legislature passed uh, a map following the 2020 census, and voters and voter voting rights groups challenged the map, claiming that it was an extreme partisan gerrymander. The North Carolina Supreme Court eventually agreed that the map was drawn to maximize the performance of Republicans. And importantly for this case, the court found that that violated the state's constitutional guarantee for a free and fair election. So the state legislature went back and redrew the map, but the state courts found that those didn't pass constitutional muster either, and eventually the courts, through experts, drew the map itself. Now, North Carolina's state legislative leaders are challenging that decision under what's known as the independent state legislature theory, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more. There are several different versions of the theory, but um, in short... The theory is based on a provision in the United States Constitution known as the Elections Clause, which says that the time, place, and manner of federal elections shall be set, quote, in each state by the legislature thereof. So the argument goes that only the legislature, not the state courts, not state election officials, not the governor, it's the legislature that gets to set voting rules for federal elections in each state. So I think that's sort of... um you know, a down and dirty um, overview of what's going on here. But there's a lot more, I think, to talk about. Um, In particular, this issue of the independent state legislature theory. uh, It's not really new to the court, but doesn't seem to have a great history in the Supreme Court. Well, Well, let me ask you to kind of, if you could kind of spell out kind of the different versions of this. Some folks uh, who are concerned about this case have sort of spoken like the apocalypse is coming here because the court of what the court might might, might do. Um, is it necessarily the apocalypse? Is there a kind of narrower version of this this theory that the court might latch on to? What, what are kind of the range of possibilities in the case? Yeah, I do think that there are some version of this that, um, you know, that, that at least progressives and liberals can live with. Um, so let me just sort of spell them out. There's, I guess the one that is most concerning, um, to some people is the most maximalist version of this, which says that it's just the legislature that gets to decide these rules and it's the legislature unbound. 
by the state constitution, sort of unbound by the state courts um, and unbound by the governor that, you know, even if there's a specific provision in a state constitution, um, which lays out, you know, voting rules for either federal or state elections, that this, the legislature can sort of ignore that and do what it wants. And there's nothing that anyone else within the state can do. Um, that's sort of the, the most concerning version of this theory, I think, that people have. Um, but there's sort of a, a, a more minimalist version, I think, where there is still a role for, you know, the governor to play in vetoing, you know, legislative enactments involving uh, election laws, that there's still the ability of state courts to kind of police where the legis if the legislature is following the the rules that it sets out, um, but that it sort of restrains specifically courts that they can't really rely on more amorphous provisions in their state constitutions to come up with these specific rules. So here, you know, this idea that something as ambiguous as a free and fair election could mean that the state couldn't engage in partisan gerrymandering, something like that may not be available, but the court could still, um, the state courts could still police whether or not the legislature is following through with, you know, providing polling places or um, setting up early voting and things like that. So um, did I get that about right? Or do you think that's kind of the, the range? Yeah, um, I, I do. And of course, you know, the court can always say we're not kind of deciding whether we're doing the minimalist or the maximalist uh, version here. We're just deciding this case in front of us and we'll we'll worry about those other things as we go forward. It does strike me as you were talking there just how much it, even if they they adopt the minimalist approach, just how much more the Supreme Court is going to be involved in these sorts of things because it's the one that's going to have to decide whether that free and fair election clause is, you know, so ambiguous that that it's going to essentially second guess the the uh, state supreme court on its view of the constitution. Well, yeah, I was going to say it almost guarantees that the supreme court's going to be involved because that idea of, you know, what is ambiguous and what's not ambiguous, we already see the court sort of struggling with that, not just supreme court but the lower courts in the realm of administrative law, right? Whether or not what the Congress tells agencies to do is ambiguous enough that the agencies kind of have run of the show there or whether or not it's courts who get to say what the law means and and that creates all kinds of confusion. That's an ongoing debate that we see actively happening in the Supreme Court. And if they're going to do that in the election realm, I think that that's going to be uh, a big job for the justices over over the next decade or so. Yeah. And so talk a little bit about the his- history of this. The, the first time I uh, encountered this sort of issue was in the, the Bush v. Gore case. So I think proponents of this theory point actually to a case from 1892, um, uh, McPherson, which referred to state legislative power over the appointment of electors, which is a little bit different than what's what's going on here, but is um, very similar um, in delegating uh, power to the state legislature. Um, in the McPherson case, the court described the power over the state legislative power over the appointment of electors as plenary. Um, but it wasn't really dealing with that specific theory. And so where we really see the theory sort of popping up 
um, most um, kind of directly is in this case out of Ohio from 1916, where the Supreme Court actually specifically blessed um, the use of popular referendums in establishing um, voting rules. And then again, the court blessed gubernatorial vetoes in election legislation in a case um, from 1932. So uh, not much was said from the court until um, that Bush versus Gore. And actually, it wasn't Bush versus Gore, but the precursor to it, really, where um, this theory was cited favorably. Uh, but the court didn't actually decide the case on that theory. Um, they said they sort of sent the case back to the lower courts to say, like, what did you what were you trying to do here? Um, and then since then, there have been two cases that have seemed to reject the independent state legislature theory um, in was it 2015 in Arizona state legislature versus Arizona independent redistricting commission. This theory was explicitly rejected. Um, it said that, you know, by state, by popular referendum, people could actually take redistricting wholly out of the hands of the legislature and put it with an independent commission. And then just a few terms ago in Rocha versus common cause, um, the court said that federal courts could not police partisan gerrymandering, but it said, don't worry. It's not as if this issue is going to go unaddressed. State constitutions um, and state courts through those constitutions can always police partisan gerrymandering. So I don't know. Why doesn't that resolve this case, Greg? Why doesn't Rocho and the dicta there sort of say that's the end of this case? North Carolina Supreme Court can do this. Well, uh, in part because, as we said before, it's a different court than than it was then. Um, it's a more conservative court. Uh, and, and this is an issue that conservatives have been pushing uh, for for decades. And uh, they haven't gotten traction on it yet. But, you know, you also have to kind of remember the context of the last presidential election where state Supreme Courts issued rulings that in the minds of Republicans and conservatives uh, flew in the face of their own constitutions that rewrote the rules that the Republican, uh, I think in, in most cases, the Republican-controlled legislatures had had put in place. And there, there's been kind of a clamoring for some restraints on the ability of state Supreme Courts to rewrite the, the election rules. And so all that movement has, uh, and because of the potential impact on the presidential election, I think has really ginned up a lot of interest in this case and a lot of uh, uncertainty about how it's going to come out. Yeah, I think, I think too, the uncertainty also exists with not just what the Supreme Court is going to do, but then once the Supreme Court issues an opinion, what lower courts are going to do with that. I mean, I don't think that the Supreme Court is going to spell out how this theory, you know, plays out in every situation, particularly um, as it relates to you know, the election of the president. And so, which isn't directly, you know, involved in this case, but does, you know, track very closely to it. And I think, you know, there's some real ambiguity about what lower courts are going to do armed with a Supreme Court opinion um, that, you know, we don't even know what that's going to look like. So the court is hearing three additional cases next week to close out uh, 2022, uh, a couple of bankruptcy cases and then one on the False Claims Act. Um, we don't have time, considering that there are two blockbusters that the justices are hearing. We're not going to cover those cases, but you can always check up on those cases and everything happening at the Supreme Court at news.bloomberglaw.com. 
an individual's race should not be used to help him or harm him in his life's endeavors. A pair of lawsuits has made its way to the Supreme Court, and the decision could dramatically change just who gets into which college. Bloom is effectively using the Asian community as pawns. Every lawsuit needs a villain. To mask an anti-black and anti-Latino agenda. Does this demoralize me? No, it doesn't demoralize me. This season on Uncommon Law, we'll explore the arguments and the people driving this latest battle over affirmative action. Can the Constitution be used to remedy society's ills? I'm the only person in class who has to raise my hand and say, okay, well, actually, here's how this affects people that look like me. Does the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause prohibit all discrimination based on race? You let somebody in because of their race, you're keeping somebody else out because of their race. There might have been two or three Latinos, including me. And so somehow that's too much. Somehow that goes too far. It's hard not to take that very personally. Coming October 25th, part one of a three-part series on affirmative action. What's being decided is whether black and brown people are going to be excluded in significant numbers. Only on Uncommon Law from Bloomberg Industry Group.